Chapter 16, Part 5, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 2, by Edward Gibbon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 2, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter 16, Conduct Towards the Christians, From Nero to Constantine. Part 5. The Apology of Tertullian contains two very ancient, very singular, but at the same time very suspicious instances of imperial clemency, the edicts published by Tiberius and by Marcus Antonus, and designed not only to protect the innocence of the Christians, but even to proclaim those stupendous miracles which had attested the truth of their doctrine. The first of these examples is attended with some difficulties, which might perplex a skeptical mind. We are required to believe that Pontius Pilate informed the emperor of the unjust sentence of death which he had pronounced against an innocent and, as it appeared, a divine person, and that, without acquiring the merit, he exposed himself to the danger of martyrdom that Tiberius, who avowed his contempt for all religion, immediately conceived the design by placing the Jewish Messiah among the gods of Rome, that his servile senate ventured to disobey the commands of their master, that Tiberius, instead of resenting their refusal, contented himself with protecting the Christians from the severity of the laws, many years before such laws were enacted, or before the church had assumed any distinct name or existence. And lastly, that the memory of this extraordinary transaction was preserved in the most public and authentic records, which escaped the knowledge of the historians of Greece and Rome, and were only visible to the eyes of an African Christian who composed his apology one hundred and sixty years after the death of Tiberius. The edict of Marcus Antonus is supposed to have been the effect of his devotion and gratitude for the miraculous deliverance which he had obtained in the Marcomannic War. The distress of the legions, the seasonable tempest of rain and hail, of thunder and of lightning, and the dismay and defeat of the barbarians, have been celebrated by the eloquence of several pagan writers. If there were any Christians in that army, it was natural that they should ascribe some merit to the fervent prayers which, in the moment of danger, they had offered up for their own and the public safety. But we are still assured by monuments of brass and marble, by the imperial medals, and by the Anton Column, that neither the prince nor the people entertained any sense of the single obligation, since they unanimously attribute their deliverance to the providence of Jupiter and to the interposition of Mercury. During the whole course of his reign, Marcus despised the Christians as a philosopher and punished them as a sovereign. By a singular fatality, the hardships which they had endured under the government of a virtuous prince, 
immediately ceased on the ascension of a tyrant, and as none except themselves had experienced the injustice of Marcus, so they alone were protected by the lenity of Commodus. The celebrated Marcia, the most favored of his concubines, and who at length contrived the murder of her imperial lover, entertained a singular affection for the oppressed church, and though it was impossible that she could reconcile the practice of vice with the precepts of the gospel, she might hope to atone for the frailties of her sex and the profession by declaring herself the patroness of the Christians. Under the gracious protection of Marcia, they passed in safety the thirteen years of cruel tyranny, and when the empire was established in the house of Servius, they formed a domestic but more honorable connection with the new court. The emperor was persuaded that in a dangerous sickness he had derived some benefit, either spiritual or physical, from the holy oil with which one of his slaves had anointed him. He always treated with peculiar distinction several persons of both sexes who had embraced the new religion. The nurse as well as the precipitator of Caricalia, were Christians. And if that young prince ever betrayed a sentiment of humanity, it was occasioned by an incident which, however trifling, bore some relation to the cause of Christianity. Under the reign of Servius, the fury of the populace was checked, the rigor of ancient laws was for some time suspended, and the provincial governors were satisfied with receiving an annual present from the churches within their jurisdiction. As the price, or as the reward, of their moderation. The controversy concerning the precise time of the celebration of Easter armed the bishops of Asia and Italy against each other, and was considered as the most important business of this period of leisure and tranquillity. Nor was the peace of the church interrupted till the increasing numbers of proselytes seemed at length to have attracted the attention or to have alienated the mind of Servius. With the design of restraining the progress of Christianity, he published an edict which, though it was designed to affect only the new converts, could not be carried into strict execution without exposing to danger and punishment the most zealous of their teachers and missionaries. In this mitigated persecution, we may still discover the indulgent spirit of Rome and of polytheism, which so readily admitted every excuse in favor of those who practiced the religious ceremonies of their fathers. But the laws which Servius had enacted soon expired, with the authority of that emperor, and the Christians, after this accidental tempest, enjoyed a calm of thirty-eight years. Till this period they had usually held their assemblies in private houses and sequestered places. They were now permitted to erect and consecrate convenient edifices for the purpose of religious worship, to purchase lands, even at Rome itself, for the use of the community and to conduct the elections of the ecclesiastical ministers in so public, but at the same time in so exemplary a manner as to deserve the respectful attention of the Gentiles. 
this long repose of the church was accompanied with dignity. The reigns of those princes who derived their extraction from the Asiatic provinces proved the most favorable to the Christians. The eminent persons of the sect, instead of being reduced to implore the protection of a slave or concubine, were admitted into the palace in the honorable characters of priests and philosophers, and their mysterious doctrines, which were already diffused among the people, insensibly attracted the curiosity of the sovereign. When the empress Mamea passed through Antioch, she expressed a desire for conversing with the celebrated origin, the fame of whose piety and learning was spread over the East. Origen obeyed so flattering an invitation, and though he could not expect to succeed in the conversion of an artful and ambitious woman, she listened with pleasure to his eloquent exhortations and honorably dismissed him to his retirement in Palestine. The sentiments of Mamea were adopted by her son Alexander, and the philosophic devotion of that emperor was marked by a singular but injudicious regard for the Christian religion. In his domestic chapel he placed the statues of Abraham, of Orphus, of Apollonius, and of Christ, as an honor justly due to those respectable sages who had instructed mankind in the various modes of addressing their homage to the supreme and universal deity. A purer faith, as well as worship, was openly professed and practiced among his household. Bishops, perhaps for the first time, were seen at court, and after the death of Alexander, when the inhuman Maximum discharged his fury on the favorites and servants of his unfortunate benefactor, a great number of Christians of every rank and of both sexes were involved in the promiscuous massacre, which, on their account, has improperly received the name of persecution. Notwithstanding the cruel disposition of Maximum, the effects of his resentment against the Christians were of a very local and temporary nature, and the pious Origen, who had been proscribed as a devoted victim, was still reserved to convey the truths of the gospel to the ear of the monarchs. He addressed several edifying letters to the Emperor Philip, to his wife, and to his mother, and as soon as that prince who was born in the neighborhood of Palestine, had usurped the imperial scepter, the Christians acquired a friend and a protector. The public and even partial favor of Philip toward the secretaries of the new religion and his constant reverence for the ministers of the church gave some color to the suspicion which prevailed in his own times that the emperor himself was become a convert to the faith and afforded some grounds for the fable which was afterwards invented, that he had been purified by confession and penance from the guilt contracted by the murder of his innocent predecessor. The fall of Philip introduced, with the change of masters, a new system of government so oppressive to the Christians that their former condition, ever since the time of Domitian, was represented as a state of perfect freedom and security, if compared with the rigorous treatment which they experienced under the short reign of Dicius. 
the virtues of that prince will scarcely allow us to suspect that he was accentuated by a mean resentment against the favorites of his predecessor and it is more reasonable to believe that in the persecution of his general design to restore the purity of roman manners he was desirous of delivering the empire from what he condemned as a recent and criminal superstition the bishops of the most considerable cities were removed by exile or death the vigilance of the magistrates prevented the clergy of rome during sixteen months from proceeding to a new election and it was the opinion of the christians that the emperor would be more patiently endure a competitor for the purple than a bishop in the capital were it possible to suppose that the penetration of Dicius had discovered pride under the disguise of humility or that he could foresee the temporal dominion which might insensibly arise from the claims of spiritual authority we might be less surprised that he should consider the successors of st peter as the most formidable rivals to those of augustus the administration of valerian was distinguished by a levity and inconstancy ill suited to the gravity of the roman censor in the first part of his reign he surpassed in clemency those princes who had been suspected of an attachment to the christian faith in the last three years and a half listening to the insinuations of a minister addicted to the superstitions of egypt he adopted the maxims and imitated the severity of his predecessor Dicius. The accession of Galenius, which increased the calamities of the empire, restored peace to the church, and the Christians obtained the free exercise of their religion by an edict addressed to the bishops, and conceived in such terms as seemed to acknowledge their office and public character. The ancient laws, without being formally repealed, were suffered to sink into oblivion, and, excepting only some hostile intentions which were attributed to the emperor Aurelian, the disciples of Christ passed some forty years in a state of prosperity far more dangerous to their virtue than the severest trials of persecution. The story of Paul of Samosata, who filled the metropolitan see of Antioch, while the east was in the hands of Onathius and Zenobia, may serve to illustrate the condition and character of the times. The wealth of that prelate was sufficient evidence of his guilt, since it was neither derived from the inheritance of his fathers, nor acquired by the arts of honest industry. But Paul considered the service of the church as a very lucrative profession. His ecclesiastical jurisdiction was venal and rapacious. He exhorted frequent contributions from the most opulent of the faithful, and converted to his own use a considerable part of the public revenue. By his pride and luxury the Christian religion was rendered odious in the eyes of the Gentiles, his council chamber and his throne, the splendor with which he appeared in public, the suppliant crowd who solicited his attention, 
the multitude of letters and petitions to which he dictated his answers, and the perpetual hurry of business in which he was involved, were circumstances much better suited to the state of a civil magistrate than the humility of a primitive bishop. When he harangued his people from the pulpit, Paul affected the figurative style and the theatrical gestures of an Asiatic sophist, while the cathedral resounded with the loudest and most extravagant acclamations in the praise of his divine eloquence. Against those who resisted his power, or refused to flatter his vanity, the prelate of Antioch was arrogant, rigid, and inexorable. But he relaxed the discipline and lavished the treasures of the church on his dependent clergy, who were permitted to imitate their master in the gratification of every sensual appetite. For Paul indulged himself very freely in the pleasures of the table, and he had received into the episcopal palace two young and beautiful women as the constant companions of his leisure moments. Notwithstanding these scandalous vices, if Paul of Samosata had preserved the purity of the orthodox faith, his reign over the capital of Syria would have ended only with his life, and had seasonable persecution intervened, an effort, to, an effort of courage might perhaps have placed him in the rank of saints and martyrs. Some nice and subtle errors, which he imprudently adopted and obstinately maintained concerning the doctrine of the Trinity, excited the zeal and indignation of the Eastern churches. From Egypt to the Exwine Sea, the bishops were in arms and in motion. Several councils were held, confutations were published, excommunications were pronounced, ambiguous explanations were by turns accepted and refused, treaties were concluded and violated, and at length Paul of Samosata was degraded from his episcopal character by the sentence of seventy or eighty bishops who assembled for that purpose at Antioch, and who, without consulting the rights of the clergy or people, appointed a successor by their own authority. The manifest irregularity of this proceeding increased the numbers of the discontented faction, and as Paul, who was no stranger to the arts of courts, had insinuated himself into the favor of Zenobia, had maintained above four years the possession of the Episcopal house and office. The victory of Arulian changed the face of the East, and the two contending parties, who applied to each other the epitaphs of schism and heresy, were either commanded or permitted to plead their cause before the tribunal of the conqueror. This public and very singular trial affords a convincing proof that existence, the property, the privileges, and the internal policy of the Christians were acknowledged, if not by the laws, at least by the magistrates of the empire. As a pagan and as a soldier, it could scarcely be expected that Aurelian should enter into the discussion, whether the sentiments of Paul or those of his adversaries were most agreeable to the true standard of the orthodox faith. 
His determination, however, was founded on the general principles of equity and reason. He considered the bishops of Italy as the most impartial and respectable judges among the Christians. And, as soon as he was informed that they had unanimously approved the sentence of the council, he acquiesced in their opinion, and immediately gave orders that Paul should be compelled to relinquish the temporal possessions belonging to an office, of which, in the judgment of his brethren, he had been regularly deprived. But while we applaud the justice, we should not overlook the policy of Aurelian, who was desirous of restoring and cementing the dependence of the provinces on the capital, by every means which could bind the interests or prejudices of any part of his subjects. Amidst the frequent revelations of the empire, the Christians still flourished in peace and prosperity, and notwithstanding a celebrated error of martyrs has been deduced from the extension of Diocletian, the new system of policy introduced and maintained by the wisdom of that prince continued during more than eighteen years to breathe the mildest and most liberal spirit of religious toleration. The mind of Diocletian himself was less adapted indeed to speculative inquiries than to the active labors of war and government. His prudence rendered him adverse to any great innovation and though his temper was not very susceptible of zeal or enthusiasm, he always maintained a habitual regard for the ancient deities of the empire. But the leisure of the two empresses, of his wife Prisca, and of Valeria, his daughter, permitted them to listen with more attention and respect to the truths of Christianity, which in every age has acknowledged its important obligations to female devotion. The principal eunuchs, Lucian and Dorotheus, Gregonius and Andrew, who attended the person, possessed the favor and governed the household of Diocletian, protected by their powerful influence the faith which they had embraced. Their example was imitated by many of the most considerable officers of the palace, who in their respective stations had the care of the imperial ornaments, of the robes, of the furniture, of the jewels, and even of the private treasury, and, though it might sometimes be incumbent on them to accompany the emperor when he sacrificed in the temple, they enjoyed with their wives, their children, and their slaves the free exercise of the Christian religion. Diocletian and his colleagues frequently conferred the most important offices on those persons who avowed their abhorrence for the worship of the gods, but who had displayed abilities proper for the service of the state. The bishops held an honorable rank in their respective provinces, and were treated with distinction and respect, not only by the people, but by the magistrates themselves. Almost in every city the ancient churches were found insufficient to contain the increasing multitude of proselytes, and in their place more stately and capricious edifices were erected for the public worship of the faithful. The corruption of manners and principles so forcibly lamented by Eusebius may be considered 
not only as a consequence, but as a proof of the liberty which the Christians enjoyed and abused under the reign of Diocletian. Prosperity had relaxed the nerves of discipline. Fraud, envy, and malice prevailed in every congregation. The presbyters aspired to the episcopal office, church with a more violent persecution than any which she had yet endured. The zeal and rapid progress of the Christians awakened the polytheists from their supine indifference in the cause of those deities whom custom and education had taught them to revere. The mutual provocations of a religious war, which had already continued above two hundred years, exasperated the animosity of the contending parties. The pagans were incensed at the rashness of their recent and obscure sect, which presumed to accuse their countrymen of error, and to devote their ancestors to eternal misery. The habits of justifying the popular mythology against the invectiveness of implacable enemy produced in their minds some sentiments of faith and reverence for a system which they had been accustomed to consider with the most careless levity. The supernatural powers assumed by the church inspired at the same time terror and emulation. The followers of the established religion entrenched themselves behind a similar fortification of prodigies, invented new modes of sacrifice, of expiation, and of initiation, attempted to revive the credit of their expiring oracles, and listened with eager credulity to every impostor who flattered their prejudices by a tale of wonders. Both parties seemed to acknowledge the truth of those miracles which were claimed by their adversaries, and, while they were content with ascribing them to the arts of magic and to the power of demons, they mutually concurred in restoring and establishing the reign of superstition. Philosophy, her most dangerous enemy, was now converted into her most useful ally. The groves of the academy, the gardens of Epicurus, and even the portico of the Stoics were almost deserted as so many different schools of skepticism or impiety, and many among the Romans were desirous of the writings of Cicero should be condemned and suppressed by the authority of the Senate. The prevailing sect of the new Platoticians judged it prudent to connect themselves with the priest whom perhaps they despised against the Christians, whom they had reason to fear. These fashionable philosophers prosecuted the design of extracting allegorical wisdom from the fictions of their Greek poets, instituted mysterious rites of devotion for the use of their chosen disciples, recommended the worship of the ancient gods as the emblems or ministers of the supreme deity, and composed against the faith of the gospel many elaborate treatises which have since been committed to the flames by the prudence of orthodox emperors. End of chapter 16 Conduct Towards the Christians Part 5